You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On this episode, I speak with Ethan Davidoff, who founded Atlas in 2017 and serves as CEO. Prior to Atlas, Ethan was a founding member of Risk IQ, where he took a variety of individual contributor roles and management responsibilities, resulting in exponential revenue growth and ultimately an acquisition by Microsoft. Prior to Risk IQ, Ethan owned and operated a software development firm that built smartphone applications for Fortune 500 brands. Ethan earned his business degree from UC Berkeley and attended the London School of Economics. I'm an investor in this company, so very excited about how well they've been doing. Since starting a few years ago, they're up to 30 employees, 10 signed health system clients, and they're growing 675% year over year in ACV revenue. On the show, we discuss medical financial aid. We talk about co-founder changes and how to do it without blowing up your company, maintaining alignment internally in your team, and how to sell a product you haven't built yet. I think you'll enjoy it, so stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Miles. So your company helps people pay for healthcare. That's correct. So how does it work? So we help people get financial aid to cover their medical expenses. And the way we do that is we partner primarily with hospitals and health systems to automatically match their patients to financial aid programs that will cover their bills. We engage the patients, collect consent, enroll them in the programs, and then handle all of the back office functions such as claims and ordering to move the money from the programs to the hospitals. Therefore, patients don't end up with a bill that they can't afford. I mean, it sounds great, but can you explain what medical financial aid means? I mean, people may have heard of financial aid for college, but is this insurance? So medical financial aid is not insurance. Insurance, the way we think about insurance, a patient has to uh, pay a premium uh, to an insurance company. With medical financial aid, there is no premium. It's Think of it as coverage that will pay the bills, but the consumer is not on the hook to have to pay a premium. So who pays for it? The medical financial aid programs pay for it. And that can be broken down uh, in terms of government programs, uh, philanthropic programs, diagnosed space assistance foundations, pharmaceutical manufacturers, um, and other uh, state and local charities. So it come from charity, it could come from government, it could come from a drug company. That's right. Why would a drug company want to pay for this? Drug companies invest billions of dollars in R&D, and some of these drugs are, are really there to save lives or ex- extend people's lives. Uh, but they're very expensive to develop and they're very uh, expensive to administer. And so the drug companies feel that they're doing their part by helping patients with their out-of-pocket costs that they may not be able to afford. 
and they don't want patients to have to waive treatment uh, because of that fact. And so that's why the drug companies have invested in uh, philanthropy, in setting up foundations, donating to other foundations uh, to help patients be able to access and afford the, the pharmaceuticals they need. So is it kind of like a common app for college financial aid? Yes and no. So the no is that every program does have their own set of eligibility rules, their own applications, their own processes for how they approve and deny and distribute funds. And there's a lot of um, legal and compliance issues for uh, depending on the program that have to be worked out. Yes, it's a, uh, you can think of it as a universal app because that's essentially what Atlas does. It manages thousands of these programs behind the scenes to create a very streamlined workflow and universal app for both our hospital and health system partners, as well as the patients and the communities they serve. And so hospitals get paid, people get healthcare, these programs find patients to support. It sounds like a win-win-win. Everybody wins except the debt collectors. So by helping get these bills paid on the front end through these charitable organizations, there's less money for the traditional debt collection market to go after. And I guess that's great because who wants to get those calls anyway? We agree. I'm curious, this seems deep in the healthcare system. How did you discover this need? We stumbled into this need. The journey started with myself about seven years ago, having some issues with medical bills. Then about a year later, uh, my wife had some issues with medical bills. What we learned from that experience was that as the consumer, and in, in this country, you're kind of guilty before proven innocent. And so that spurred a lot of passion and research. And we, we quickly realized that if we wanted to help patients, we needed to provide value uh, to either the providers or insurance companies or pharmaceutical manufacturers or all of the above. And so we first decided to focus on the doctors, the folks that are actually delivering care. And as we investigated how they were getting reimbursed for the care delivered, we, we saw a gap. We saw that many people were afraid of what the hospital bills might be or that they simply got sick, lost their job and couldn't afford they're out of pocket or couldn't, or couldn't afford insurance. And so as we dove deeper, what we saw was a market that was very fragmented. They had different players that were focusing on government programs, many of which are low-tech, heavy OPEX, you know, legacy staffing businesses. We also saw how the hospital financial assistance programs were working which is an, an IRS regulation that nonprofit hospitals and health systems must administer their own giveaway discount programs uh, to be compliant with the federal government. And, and with that, we saw that there was maybe a lack of technology investment and automation and efficiency. And then finally, we stumbled into this gap that we call philanthropic aid which is about a $30 billion chunk that is underutilized and uncapped that is specifically meant for those that need aid the most, those with cancer, other chronic conditions, rare diseases that need 
high cost recurring specialty therapeutics to have quality of life or even, even extend their life. So it sounds like you had the personal experience as a patient, which originally got you interested in this area. That's correct. And so that passion continues to drive you forward, I imagine. You early on had one co-founder and later brought in a different co-founder. I'd love to chat more about that process, what it was like for you. It was a very, um, a learning experience. So originally I did not come from the healthcare market and I had a friend that did. And we had worked together um, about a decade prior in him building software and, and me selling software, which is a very kind of good combination uh, to, to start a company, right? That's, that's where a lot of the values created in, in, the, uh, in the early days. And we had a journey and on our journey, maybe about nine months in, we had a difference of opinion on the direction of the business and some of the big decisions about what to build and in what order we had a disagreement and, you know, over the next few months, we decided to part ways amicably and we're, you know, still friends to this day. What, uh, during that period was a very tough uh, point in this company's journey. So it was, a, it was definitely a low point. Coincidentally, I got connected to uh, my now co-founder, uh, Brian. We've kind of been on a wonderful journey together. And over the last, you know, few years, we've just had some very explosive uh, growth in terms of uh, the patients we've helped, the health system partners we've signed on, and of course, um, the revenue growth. Well, congratulations on that growth. And I'd like to get there in more detail. But before we move past the co-founder part, you know, there's a saying, you know, in uh, startup land, they really want to build something people want as being like the number one focus. I think the other big problem early on for startups is teams not working out. And you've described a disagreement over strategy, vision, where the company should go, and you parted ways, but it didn't kill the company. So any advice for people how to do that successfully? Persistence. Never give up. Stay focused. You know, you should be stubborn on your vision, but flexible on the details in, in, in terms of how you get there. You know, it, it really is, it's all about perseverance and being resourceful, keeping a positive attitude. It is very hard, especially in an industry that's highly regulated and capital intensive, like working with hospitals uh, to, to get in and it takes time. And so for, for any entrepreneurs that are listening, trust your gut and keep going. And when you went to select another co-founder to bring in someone, I imagine I would have had thoughts of like, okay, it didn't work out before. Am I going to make the same mistake? How to avoid doing that and having some questions and doubts. And I'm curious how you decided that bringing Brian in was the right person. So Brian and I got to know each other over about a three month period and, uh, and worked together in a more informal capacity before we kind of formal, formalized our, our, our co-founder and CTO agreement. In that three-month period, we both got a chance to 
really get to know each other, get to understand our, our working style, our working styles, our, our philosophies, our value system. We'd both spent, met, met, our, met each other's parents, if you will, and traveled together. I mean, literally, uh, or is that metaphorically? No, literally, literally. Okay. Yeah, so wow. he, he met my parents in San Francisco. I met his parents in, uh, in uh, New Jersey. We had a bit of our own journey. And when we first met, there was a cup, you know. So yeah, we, we had a, a pretty thoughtful journey. It, it sounds a little uh, maybe odd or cliche, but it is a, a bit like dating and getting engaged and getting married a bit. <laughs> so Sounds pretty fast. It was, it was fast, but uh, in, I think it was fast because um, when I met Brian, we had already signed up our initial three health systems. And so we had kind of sold the product. We had, we, you know, we'd sold, we had demoware and we sold them the product. And then, you know, we needed to actually develop the production systems and go live. And so I think that maybe one of the things that, that attracted Brian, uh, you know, to take a leap and to take a chance on Atlas uh, was the fact that we had kind of this traction built in. It was a large market opportunity, a broken system, a real mission, uh, mission-driven, you know, problem around the, the impact on people's lives and their families. And I think that helped kind of accelerate our, our kind of journey from, you know, the first meeting, the end of February to coming in full time in May. Any other tactical advice? Sounds like you went about that very thoughtfully. Things to make sure to do, meet the parents, but what else? So I'm a big believer in scorecard, the scorecards and keeping it simple. For me, I try to, for anybody that, you know, that I hire or that joins the company, I come up with no more than five dimensions that I ultimately need to kind of grade that individual on. And the process, whether it's a formal interview process over a couple of weeks or an informal process over a few months, I think what you're doing is you're organically, you know, asking questions or setting up scenarios or observing behaviors that help you objectively back into your scorecard. And ultimately, we're all human beings. None of us are perfect. We all have our, our, our you know, our pros and cons. And so at the end of the day, you have to, you know, you have to see if this is worth the risk, right? Like anything in life. And, and, and again, trust your gut. And so I think the final thing I'd say is that one of the things I've learned from Brian and in the journey of, you know, going from me and Brian to now 30 employees is that the most critical factor to success is about being open to learn and grow continuously. And the openness to learn is, is one of the things that I think really sets people apart. I think many people have a self-image that they're open to learning, but how do you know if you really do? It's a very good question. It's very tough to figure out in a tight time window or in an interview process. So, you know, the easy answer is you don't know, and you have to work together for some period of time 
and kind of see if people are open, you know, to if, see if their behavior changes, if their perspectives get augmented, if, if they're learning and growing and it, it'll, it'll be natural or if maybe they're stuck in their ways. So I don't, I don't have a magic bullet for it. Maybe one, one interview question. Here's a, a little bit of a, a tactical question in an interview or when you meet somebody, you can ask them, you know, what three adjectives would you use to describe yourself? Right, listen to what they say. And then afterwards, ask them what three adjectives would their friends and family use to describe them? And so that, that tends to be an interesting question to test people's perception of themselves and, and how they see themselves versus how they believe you know, others perceive them. Interesting. How often do those lists differ? Most of the time, they always differ. They're never 100% match. Very rarely will, very rarely are they 100% match. And if you do get 100% match, maybe, maybe the person, you know, potentially, well, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Okay, fair enough. Um, you mentioned lots of growth since Brian came on board. What can you share about the numbers? 30 employees? What else? So we now have 10 signed health system clients and we are on pace to do about 675% year over year uh, closed ACV revenue growth. So it's been quite a year so far and should be a very exciting uh, finish to the year for Atlas. And we're just getting started. Wow. I mean, that's explosive growth. Yeah, it's really exciting. You know, we've, we've brought in a lot of great people, really have a lot of conviction in our go-to-market strategy, and we've, you know, validated it with our early adopters. And yeah, we've just brought in some great people and created some great structure uh, to get the ready, to get the company ready for scale. When you're growing that fast, what are the key challenges? One of the main challenges is alignment. It's very um, easy for folks to fall out of alignment. And so I think my, you know, my job or one of my jobs is to, you know, ensure that everybody's on the same page and ensure that the senior leadership team is, is blocking and tackling together, is collaborating, is, is asking each other for help, ensuring alignment, and, 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 and ultimately, so that kind of ripples down to everybody in the company. And so I think, you know, when folks are, when it's very clear, this is the rally cry, right? This is the company goal. And this is how every department's goals roll up to the company goal. I think that you naturally end up with a lot of camaraderie, a lot of trust, a lot of transparency. You know, building a company is really hard. And it's, it's a very competitive landscape for what we do. And in some ways it feels like, you know, we're all kind of in the foxholes together. We have each other's back. You know, it's it's the day-to-day -day trials and tribulations uh, that we're working through, and that's what it's all about. And that um, that it's never as good as it seems, right? It's and it's never as bad as it seems. We're there for each other. Never as good as it seems, and never as bad as it seems. I think that's great advice. 
I can't take credit for it. I, I heard it from somebody else, but I, <laughs> I use it quite a bit. In that vein, what's been the impact of COVID? So COVID has both in some ways slowed down parts of our business, but in other ways has sped up parts of our business. So in terms of slowing down our growth, just from a kind of a sales aspect in terms of the prioritization of maybe what the law of the legal queue with contracts or maybe where originally we could accelerate sales by flying in, getting on site, you know, walking down the halls, kind of, you know, talking to all the various stakeholders in a, in a shorter time window. So I think some of the sales cycles for Atlas have been maybe a bit extended. On the other hand, I think COVID has been an accelerator because given when it first broke out last year, the our, our, our partners, which are the hospitals and the health systems, they lost a lot of volume. They lost their uh, elective surgeries, you know, procedures that aren't mandatory, but are, you know, traditionally, you know, big vol, you know, big money makers for, for those systems. And so I think what I, what I saw happen was that even, you know, traditional nonprofit um, health systems that, that may have run like a maybe traditional nonprofit were kind of forced to uh, be a bit more aggressive with getting solutions in the door that delivered hard dollars. And so because Atlas, from a business perspective, we effectively are delivering money uh, to the hospitals, uh, I think that it helped kind of prioritize maybe Atlas as a strategic project for the year versus some of the other projects that they may have been considering. So ultimately, the net is some accelerators and some, some decelerators. And I think eventually it kind of, kind of uh, canceled each other out. But still tremendous growth. So that, that's great. Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. What's a startup tech nonprofit, you ask? A startup is an organization seeking to grow that is new. Tech, meaning using software to scale with lower to zero marginal costs. And nonprofit, meaning organized as a public charity. So support innovation by seeding nonprofits leveraging technology to scale. Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. What are the risks as you look ahead? I think the biggest risk is really just the kind of execution risk and making sure we continue to, to hire the right people into the right roles, right? Setting the right structure, giving everybody an, an amazing uh, career path, making sure we're, we're generous and thoughtful with, with compensation structures, making sure we're, we're thoughtful human beings and we're good to each other and that we don't, we, we find the balance of the, you know, the intensity and the passion and the, the killer instinct and, the, and the, the long hours of work with being there to support each other's families and time off and mental health and, and balance. And so I think at the stage that we're at, with, we have so much conviction in our, in our go-to-market strategy, it's really just a function of getting the right people into the company and retaining them. 
So execution. And right. that really comes down to people. It's all about people. Yeah, they say that the role of a startup founder is making sure you don't run out of money, getting the right people on the team. And some people think that's it. Uh, others would say in finding customers. What, what's your view on it? My view is that the role changes over time, depending on the stage of the business, you know, the milestones, how you're financed, et cetera. I think in the early, early days, and, and again, I can only speak from kind of a, my B2B enterprise experience. I mean, the early days, it's all about build the product, sell the product. You have to get, you have to listen to the market. You have to understand what the market wants. You have to kind of first identify what I call concept market fit. Then you need to sell, prove that you can sell into that. And then you need to actually deliver on that product and validate the business model. And, and really that's that everything I just said there is what I see as, as stage one. And I think that all of the other things in that stage don't really matter that much. I think you need to, you just so build to, it and sell it. Is what build it really and matters. sell it and, and validate the model and validate that the market's there and that, you know, the unit economics work and that there's a, you know, there's a big enough TAM where it's a venture backed business. Right. So that's stage one. I think stage two, at least for me, was really honing in and figuring out the go-to-market strategy. Why is our product better, right? Why are we the best choice of all the choices in the market that are available to solve this business problem, right? How do we, how do we win? So it's really how do we sell and where are we going to bet our chips on the product roadmap? So I think that takes some time, some experimenting, talking to, hopefully by this time you validated the model, you're in market, you have customers and case studies, and now it's much easier to go from 30 conversations with customers to hopefully, you know, 200, 300 conversations with customers. And again, I'm using these numbers in our hospital health system enterprise market where, you know, there's, there's less than 2,000, you know, target, target uh, partners for us, right? So, so stage two is a go-to-market strategy and figuring it out and getting a lot of conviction in that, you know, why, and why you're going to win and, and beat the competition. And then after that, I think you're in stage three, which is kind of the stage that, that we've, that, well, stage three, stage three, I would say is then it's all about building the executive team. So you have product market fit, right? You validated the business model. You have, you validated the go-to-market strategy. And before you can scale up, I believe you need the right leadership in the right structures and leaders in place so that you're ready to scale. You're ready to hire 50 people, a hundred people, large groups of people at one time. You have to kind of get those leaders in get the structures kind of battle tested, get that operational maturity and, and operational kind of cadence humming. And then, and then you're ready for stage four, which is really what we're kind of on the cusp of entering, which is getting 
the substantial amount of capital to accelerate the go-to-market execution. Now, you used a word or a phrase, concept market fit, and most people talk about product market fit, which you also used. Are those interchangeable or are those different things? They're different things, in my opinion. Yeah, explain that. So when I was a kid, there was a movie I saw growing up. I think it was called Pirates of Silicon Valley. And it was about the birth of Microsoft and Apple and the interplay. And and there's a scene in the movie where Bill Gates is sitting down with IBM in a conference room and he's selling them an operating system, right? Maybe what we remember as uh, DOS. Well, at the time of that sale, Bill Gates and Microsoft did not have an operating system. They weren't building an operating system. They actually didn't have it. And so the way the movie, the way the Hollywood movie goes, they made the sale. And then after they made the sale, they got the product or got the product ready to deliver. And so when you're, when you're building an enterprise, I think that it's going to take, generally speaking, it takes about a year for product development, but, you know, to get your initial product ready and battle tested to go into production, uh, especially, you know, in this, in this particular market, especially. And so instead of talking to customers, what are they, you know, figuring out what they want, seeing the patterns, seeing the gaps, and then hibernating and building a product for a year and then coming back to them and saying, look, it's ready. Are you ready to buy? Are you ready to go? I believe that is not a good strategy. In that one year, the market could change. Uh, There could be a competitor that has already locked up those contracts. And so the the definition of market, of concept market fit for me is that when, when you feel that you've discovered a gap in the market or a secret or an intractable problem where there's an opening for you to come in as a, as a new player and add true uh, value into the ecosystem, I think that before you build anything, you want to test the concept. So at Atlas, what we did is we sent about a thousand cold emails to hospital CFOs and hospital finance executives with exactly what our vision was. From those thousand emails, we got 37 meetings. Most of the people that that said, hey, this sounds great, but who are you and who are your customers and where are your, your case studies and references? And from those 37 meetings, we were lucky enough and fortunate enough to convince three customers to give us a chance. And so that's pretty good conversion for not having a product. It's not bad. (laughs) So so anyways, that's long winded, but that is what I believe is market concept fit is that if you can go from a cold email to busy executives of multi-billion dollar corporations, and they're responding and giving you the time of day, and you're even able to convert a few of them, I think that the market, I think you can definitively feel some conviction that the market, that there's demand for the concept. Now, go for it. You were describing a situation where Bill Gates was selling a non existent product. You're talking about sending out cold emails, talking about a product you haven't yet built. 
where is the line ethically between talking about the future, talking about what you're working on versus misleading people that the product already exists? I think that you have to be very um, honest, transparent, and direct. However, I think it's okay to omit very nuanced details. So let me give you an example. With Atlas, we started building the technology in Q2 of 2017. But when we started building, we built what I, what I like to call the demo version. So we build the front end. We build, we build the product, but we just don't build the back end and the, the servers, right? We build, we can show, you know, the user clicks here, this happens. So it, it's all, it all looks like it works. It's on the front end. It shows the user experience and the patient experience, but there is no back end with all the compliance and kind of cloud environments and servers that are ready to scale up and uh, redundant databases and all of that infrastructure that is, that is, you know, both time and, and capital intensive to build and develop. And so in addition, for us, we had also built, by the time we sent those thousand cold emails, we had built the database of programs and we had built the basic uh, matching algorithms to predict which patients would be eligible for what programs. And, it, and at the time, it was a very elementary set of algorithms, you know, fast forward a few years later, and there's real AI and, and machine learning models behind it now. But I think that it is a very, to go back to your question, I think it's a very delicate balance. I think the main rule is to never lie, ever. Your integrity is the most, <laughs> and your reputation is the most valuable thing that you have. It takes your whole lifetime to build it. And can, you can lose it in moments. And so never lie. That's, that's the easy one. But I do think it's okay to omit specifics. And another final example I'll use is that if we knew going in that hospitals, it's a 12-month sales cycle, and, you know, and by the time you sign, then you have at least minimum generally three months to implement and go live. And so being thoughtful about what that timeline was going to look like gave us conviction to find the balance of what we could show and what was already built versus what the future state looked like. And, and the final thing I'll say is I think that level of transparency as you're developing your relationships with your, your partners or your customers, I think that ultimately they appreciate the transparency, I think that some of there's always a part of the market that chooses to be an early adopter. And so they are aware that there's going to be some rough edges and some kinks to be worked out. They're on board for that. They don't want to be maybe left behind. And if they're not first, then they might have to be in a waiting line for a couple of years. And so I think I think we're very fortunate and very humbled by our early adopters and our executive champions there uh, that gave us a shot. Yes, early adopters are so critical to any startup. How do you nurture that relationship? 
I think you need to really just be a thoughtful problem solver and resource. It's not about always pushing your products. It's about listening, like understanding their challenges and, and what's going on and their, their own career and their job and, and the numbers that they signed up to deliver to their boss. And, you know, just basically building a very thoughtful relationship, you know, and, and being honest and trustworthy and resourceful. And so I think over the years, uh, I like to joke, I'm like a recovering salesperson, but I, I think that's really the, one of the secrets to success is, is listening and basically repositioning your value proposition based on their specific kind of challenges and issues and pain points. Thank you for that. When you say you're recovering from being a salesperson, what are the things you've had to unlearn? It's a great question. Things I've had to unlearn. So number one, being less reactive, uh, being more patient, you know, sleeping on things, slowing down, giving, not making assumptions or doing my best to avoid assumptions. I think it's also, I think another thing is just kind of taking a step back from what, what some might consider as like the inherent conflict or, or selfish nature of, of sales and commissions, right? And so if you're not, if you're incentivized by the commission on a particular deal, like as a salesperson, you may do things to get the deal that may not be in the best interest of the organization at large, but they may be in your best interest. And so I think, again, switching roles and my own you know, professional journey, I've had to learn that it's okay to you know, let the deals go if it's not the right fit on both sides. Before we wrap up, do you have any favorite articles, books that you would recommend to aspiring founders? A lot of my reading is pleasure, pleasure reading and not really as much uh, business books. But I think, uh, I think I'll, share, I'll, I'll share one of my pleasure reads because I think it's fascinating. Uh, the book is called The New Great Depression. And the book is about our uh, central banking system in a kind of post-COVID, post-pandemic world and ways to uh, kind of think about currency uh, and investing and, you know, making kind of good choices uh, to support your family. And I think it's a fascinating read and, you know, I, I would, I'll recommend it as it's, it's always good to take a break from your business and have some passion towards some other, some other hobbies that interest you. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great having you. Likewise. Thanks for having me on miles. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, and please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.